3% annual growth. But over time, that 3% becomes pretty big. But what were the things that drew people to the faith? How was the Holy Spirit working in people's lives during that time? Well, there are three main things that this guy, not a Christian, attributed to why the Roman Empire became Christian like it did. One was care of the sick. The Christians stayed there during the plagues. And they cared not just for their own, they cared for other people, other groups. There's a lot of violence in the Roman Empire times, and all the groups kind of lived together, and they had walls around their little parts uh, of their cities in Rome. But the Christians cared for the non-Christians, too. So health care, as well as education. Education drew them in. They also gave an incredibly high value to women, the early Christians did. Women were allowed to participate in worship, and there were a lot of female converts. And then lastly, martyrdom lended to their credibility. The fact that they were willing to die for it meant something. These were the signatures of the true church. Whether it was Jewish or Gentile, they had concern for the poor from the earliest times. You can't but read the church fathers and see what they have to say about the poor. Even us evangelicals don't always know our church heritage. You can't read Luther, Calvin, Barth, the Wesleys, George Mueller of Bristol, Menno Simons without having an understanding that our evangelical heritage is very much concerned with poverty. It's nothing new. Uh, Tertullian, one of the early church fathers, uh, commenting on Matthew 25, the, the separating the sheep from the goats passage, if you get a chance to read it, I encourage you to do, says this, each Christian must see in his poor brothers an image of Christ suffering for him and endeavor in his turn to comfort him and them. What ought to be the church's signature issue today? It's a good question. Sometimes I feel like there's an apathy that you see in North American Christianity. Maybe it's from a loss of our signature issue. Maybe it's our self-sufficiency, our triumphalism, our materialism. I read a stat recently that 60% of churches in America preach the prosperity gospel. The dangers of affluence, individualism. You ask someone on the street, what are Angelina Jolie's signature issue? Oh, she's probably got another one right now. But you know what I mean? Like, what's, what's her signature issue? What's Bono's signature issue from the band U2? Poverty, right? I liken it to, uh, for the church, a sense of spiritual leprosy. You can't feel the pain of the wounded body. And so we're slowly dying. So how do you restore that feeling that we've lost? Well, you hear stories like you saw in the video, right? Of lives being transformed. Your, your heart is reawakened the guy holding signs on street corners. How do you restore that feeling? How do you restore your sight? Well, you be in communication. You be in relationship. There's a real richness in the exchange. Another story. Paul, the young boy, mouthed silently, fisting his forearm to his hip in view of a friend who promptly dropped a cantaloupe out the bus window. 
Garnering a few snickers, they quickly pressed their cheeks against the glass to watch it explode on the concrete, whipping up seeds and orange flesh like a sunflower made of silly putty. The driver, attentive to chasing the other melon-picking buses, thought the kids quieter than usual. Pull, Bill mouthed again, the coast clear. The melon dropped out the window onto the windshield of a passing Corolla, causing it to crash. Cheeks against the glass, their eyes widened. Later, over time, the people he cared about, that cared for him, left him, which he saw as penance. Traveling Colorado to Boston to Texas to Bellingham and back again, staying only long enough to not be known. Shame would build upon shame as the shadows consumed him. A father and a son had died with that melon that fell on the car. And that pull and the darkness that had formed his identity. With a rock, he scraped something illegible to his ex-girlfriend in the dirt, but gave up as the letters lost form, dust thinning to bedrock. The air stung his naked body on the cliff's edge. The Coors factory, gray and dead in the sunset, a 300-foot step to oblivion. Lights flickered like Moore's code atop the factory silos. He wondered if they could see him at this distance. He moved like in a daydream, body rocking, muttering self-abasements to his feet. Rocks and shrubs stood below, small and silent. The sway became dangerous. When his eyes were drawn to two fawns in a doe, weaving through the rocks like leaves in a stream, Bill jerked back from the height's edge, stunned and hastily dressed. His 81 El Camino sprayed dirt into the switchbacks as he drove down the mountain. Later, he told me in hushed tones, must have been God put those deer there. Parked alone on a desert highway, radio off, he would come to acknowledge the echoey voice of Agent Ramirez pulsing from his speakers. Ramirez wanted Bill to work, saving our nation using a computerized, laser-guided listening and visual device. He was to start by testifying against Cyrus Bacon, chapter president of the Sons of Silence, and the murder of an ATF agent named Rory Blade. It was to be the trial of the century. Bigger than O.J., he would tell me. A story that kept him mission hopping 18 years. In moments of intimacy, he would weep at the brokenness of his life. A family disowned. A son refusing efforts to stockpile weapons. Felonies. Few had sympathized with the schizophrenic B-movie action scenarios he believed himself a part of. He would eventually, reluctantly, try Seroquel with the suggestion it might create a chemical barrier to the celestial lasers getting access to his mind. And it worked. Only to be dropped three weeks later as the voices that gave his life meaning started dissipating. He could not have the years of his martyrdom smacking of meaninglessness. He instead went back to four-hour showers and holding his breath to keep the satellite laser devices at bay. Yet, he was the first to pray in the Higgins grocery store parking lot on our program outings. The first to say, I've got your back, with the more troubled souls passing through our doors. The first to lay his life on the line and the first to point to Jesus when the pressures got too much. 
I answer to a higher power, he would shout as lasers zapped internal organs in my office. Whether you kill me or not, I don't care. I know the one I answer to. He was also the first to leave when he thought the conspiracy might endanger your life, which he did. He left. But God is not repelled by this brokenness. His concern for the poor is intense and will not be thwarted. And he delegates his responsibility, this responsibility, to his people. And how his people naturally respond is an apologetic for who God is. If we recover our signature issue, how powerful a response. Isaiah 58.10 And if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. How do we get there? Well, first off, don't sweat the petty things. And don't pet the sweaty things. <laughs> i got to keep this somewhat lighthearted. This is heavy stuff, I know. <laughs> well, sometimes we externalize poverty to something outside of ourselves. That's not me. I don't have problems like that. Right? And to think of ourselves as poor is something we're not always ready to accept. But the reality is, each of us each of us experienced, experiences deficits, right? challenges in our own life. That's what brought us to the table with Jesus. That recognition that we cannot save ourselves. We need something more to save us. And when we own that poverty, when we identify with that poverty, that's when we start to grow up. That's when we start to mature. That's when the sanctification process begins. Right? When you get people in abject poverty together with people, uh, abject economic poverty with people together that have spiritual poverty, there's a mutual healing that takes place. And it's a beautiful thing. When Jesus says we are a body, one in Christ... When our hand gets slammed in a car door in the Sudan, we've got to feel that. That's our hand. You've got to feel those things when the churches burn in Nigeria. When I get called to pray for a woman in our agape home because she needs prayer and her little four-year-old son says, are you going to hit me like my daddy hits me? That's our son who's experienced that, right? That's my child. We've got to restore our sight. And when we hang out with the material poor, that shakes us out of our attachment to things. That shakes us out of the view that wealth brings happiness. My insurance guy recently went to Africa, to Ethiopia, on a mission trip. He came back. He's not as good of an insurance guy anymore. <laughs> he recognizes that he's a workaholic. And that's a sin. 
And he needs to be present for his family. He needs to be present for his neighbors. He can't be putting in the eight-hour weeks that he'd been putting in. So I got to put up with that. But here's a man who's growing up, who's maturing. It was his engagement with the poor that brought him there. I think we need to give a correct definition of who God is to a watching world. Because a lot of people in our world are wondering, are you guys even awake? A friend of mine is a pastor. As non-Christian friends, he tries to invite them to his church when he preaches. They won't come. But when he preaches at the mission, he does our chapel service twice a month, they'll come. They'll come there. Why do you think that is? Why are they going to come to the mission to hear someone preach instead of coming to the church? Someone they're friends with. Imagine it. A non-Christian, sensitive, maybe aware that uh, they don't have their act together. You come down to the mission. There's no layers of interpretation you've got to work through with our people. Their brokenness is front and center. It's pretty authentic. An authentic place to be. That's why they come. A proud, unrepentant church repels Revelation 3, of that circular letter that gets sent to the seven churches. Laodicea was one of those churches. Revelation 3, their sin was not owning their poverty, saying it needs nothing. Verse 17. This is Jesus speaking to Laodicea. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. The church's posture of health is dependency on God. That's what it means to be healthy. That recognition that poverty is the common human condition. I can walk out into Bellingham Bay with everyone in the mission, all now 200 guests that are are residing there, all my staff, and I can start swimming to Hawaii. Right? I can probably make it, maybe, to Lummi Island if I'm lucky. But I'm not getting to Hawaii. I might have a better backstroke than the guy who's got the schizophrenia going on. But we're both not making it to Hawaii. We don't have enough energy in the system to get there. We need Christ to get us to the promised land. And I think you have to travel through that sense of poverty in order to enter the kingdom. Christianity is a faith of a people empty-handed in need of the grace that God offers. One more story. Chaplain Aaron just pulled into the lower parking lot at work when he heard some erratic honking and shouting and a really rough-looking minivan pulled in behind him, screeching to a halt. He ignored it. What's new? Downtown Bellingham. (laughs) He almost made it to the crosswalk. Trying to figure out a name to change. When James, a rather large, sinewy man, blonde, jumps out of the driver's seat, smiling and growling and twitching his eyes like a madman. (laughs) We've had a long history with this man. Years ago, 
He was trespassed or throwing apples and power tools at the mission. Chaplain Aaron, Chaplain Aaron, I know you. Ha ha, twitch, twitch. You were at the Assumption Church Christmas meal last year. And you came to me there. And you knelt beside me and told me good things about me. Ha ha, twitch, twitch. People haven't told me good things about me for a long time. Thank you, Chaplain Aaron. You told me good things. Thank you for that. Aaron nervously replied, oh, It's been a while, James. I, I haven't seen you around. And what have you been up to? Ha ha, twitch, twitch, ha ha. Aaron glanced at his van. It was packed with homeless junk. And on the driver's seat was a big box of little apples. <laughs> I loved you for that, said Justin. Can I pray for you? Twitch, twitch. Aaron eased his stance. Well, my oldest boy, 12, struggles with severe mental illness. And it's been hard for our family. Would you pray for that? James quieted and knelt to the parking lot pavement and prayed. He prayed a most sensitive quiet prayer for Aaron's son and for comfort for his family. He touched Aaron in different places on his body as he prayed, his arm, his heart, his temple. And it felt natural and right. A man mentally broken, yet filled with the Holy Spirit of God. When he finished praying, James hugged him strong and tight and blessed him and handed him six little apples. Aaron carried the apples across the street to his office. And as he was about to open the door, James sidelined across the street, breathless. Chaplain Aaron, Chaplain Aaron, I forgot something. I forgot something. Luke 7, Luke 7, read it. Aaron later recounted this to me in tears. This was the story of the centurion who was asking Jesus to heal his dying beloved servant. Aaron said, that's me, that's my son. Aaron was blessed. Our chaplain, the spiritual one, was blessed. There's nothing more subversive than friendship with a marginalized people. James, this person here with me is the big deal. Equal value. Needy in different ways, but beautiful in the image of God. Why was it that Jesus was so attractive in the land of misfit toys? Why was he so attractive? Because he offered true friendship. Friendship that wouldn't let them alone, but friendship. That's why I still teach a class in our life program. That's why I eat with the non-residents as much as I can, because they're the rougher crowd. It's to keep the calluses on my heart down. Because when you work on this long enough, it can, it can take its toll. Poverty, though, is personal. It's connected. It's complex. And it's getting worked out in many different ways. So what do we do? We keep a sense of humility. We recognize that we're standing before something that is so much bigger than us that we cannot address without the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ equipping us. 
and filling us with strength. And may we not get into a place where we think we have all the answers. Our mission just expanded our drop-in center to accommodate 80 more people at night. That's 80 more beds. It's not going to solve the problem. It's something. It's using our resources the best we can. But we cannot conquer this all by ourselves. This is the Lord's work that we are up to. This is the Lord's work that you are up to. When we step back and look at the enormity of the issues, we've got to believe that the gospel that met us in our spiritual poverty, our own poverty, is powerful enough to transform these things. And we get that sense from the gospel, from the scriptures itself. 2 Corinthians 8-9. This is how Jesus communicates his grace. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Let's close in prayer. Dear Lord, we lift up to you the poor and the marginalized. We know that these are your cherished ones, that you are a God whose heart cries out for justice, that you are a God who longs to feed the hungry. We ask simply, Lord, that you give us your heart. Fill us, Lord, with your compassion. Give us your eyes to see. Give us boldness and selflessness and wisdom so that we too might cry out for justice and feed the hungry, so that your light might shine throughout the earth. Lord, we especially lift up the children among us who are poor and marginalized, who find themselves in circumstances they did not choose and are helpless to change. We lift up the AIDS orphans, children of war, children at agape who have suffered abuse and neglect, children smitten with malnutrition and disease, lacking education, housing, the most basic of life's necessities, might they somehow come to know the love of their creator who knows each hair on their head and collects their tears. Lord, you know every wretched tale, every overwhelming statistic. You know personally one by one. Thank you that one day you will make all things right through your son, Jesus Christ. Until that day, let us be tireless in doing what is good and what is right unto the least of these, knowing the Father's love for them. Amen.